<clears throat> Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 11. the 11th chapter of the book of Revelation, John's vision. <clears throat> A lot has been going on in the chapters before this. Um, John, in the last chapter, took the little book out of the hand of the angel and as he was directed to take it and to eat it, to devour it, internalize it is what that's a picture of. He was to take God's word and internalize it. And the angel told him, uh, it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be sweet as honey in your mouth. That is, uh, as you proclaim God's word, his promises, his judgments, it'll be pleasant for you to do that as you're speaking truth. But when you consider the severity of the judgments that are to come upon the wicked, sometimes even the chastisements that are to come upon the church, it will be bitter in your stomach. And so he says <clears throat> at verse 10 of chapter 10, then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. So he internalized the message on that little scroll in the angel's hand. And he, that is the angel said to me, you must prophesy again about or two actually Many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. So he says, all right, you've got it now internalized. Now you have you have the, the message. Now you have a commission to go. <clears throat> so we come to chapter 11. And we're going to consider the first 14 verses of this chapter. So I ask you to listen and, as, and follow along as I read. So John writes and says, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for forty-two months. And I will give power to my two witnesses." And they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts 
to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now, after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. In the same manner, in the same hour, rather, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Amen. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word that it's true. And we ask you, Lord, to give us grace and understanding as we look at this portion of your word. Lord, we acknowledge and confess it is a difficult passage to understand the exact nature of its fulfillment, whether past, present, or future. So we ask you to give us guidance and direct us, Lord, to know what you would have us to know and lead us beyond what we presently know, we pray. So we thank you, Lord. And I do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Chapter 11 of Revelation, like I say, a difficult passage in this. John starts off now. He's just been told that he is going to be prophesying about or to many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. So as a message. It's for them. It's about them. He's going to call them to repentance. And so the very next thing that happens, he's given a measuring rod and told to go measure the temple. Rise, measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. So he's told to go where, measure the temple, the what, the altar there, and who, the people that worship there. So judgment begins at the house of God. <clears throat> Now, some who uh, believe that the, if there's going to be a future temple rebuilt in Jerusalem and that the Antichrist is going to go there after three and a half years, declare himself to be God, and then make everyone get a mark and kill everyone, they enjoy this passage. They go, ah, see, that's what we, we told you. <clears throat> well, the problem is, is that this is a symbolic book. The word that's used for temple is not the word that's used for the temple structure, the big building mentioned this before, but it's really important to understand this. The word used for temple here is the word naos. It's okay to learn a little Greek. Doesn't hurt. Okay. Naos. Okay. In Greek, N-E, Omicron, short O, S, N-A-O-S, naos. And the naos, tu theu, means the temple of God. But that, that word naos doesn't mean the, the whole structure. It means the holy place, the sanctuary. <clears throat> And I believe it's pretty clearly is referring to the church. Uh, Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God? And the Greek there in that passage is naos tu theu. Naos, you are the temple of God. You're the sanctuary of God. And that the spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man defile or corrupts, the temple of God, him shall God destroy, or corrupt is actually the word that that is, he'll destroy them. For the temple of God is holy. That's the naos to theu, again, 
which temple ye, plural, that is you collectively as the church, are. So the scripture teaches in the New Testament that the church, the people of God, is the temple of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, at verse 19, Paul says, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Now that can be understood of your physical body or you as a body of believers. It is plural, so it does kind of lean toward the idea corporately, you're the temple of God, that you know, the corporate body, but it definitely has application on us as our individual physical bodies. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, which you have of God, and you're not your own. So you might say it's, it's a corporate or individual, else distributively. It's a, it's a corporate, but it has to do with every person. The Holy Spirit dwells in the church because he indwells every believer. When we say indwell, we don't mean physically present because the Holy Spirit is not physical. It means he's operationally present in us. Okay, He's everywhere but God's not a physical being, as it says in John 4, God is a spirit, and those who worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. But the point is, is that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and that word is naos. Again, in 2 Corinthians 6.16, Paul, in writing to them, says, And what agreement hath the temple of God, naos to theu, with idols? For ye are the temple of God, of the living God. And that's again, naos to theu. And so you're the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So when we read in Revelation, which is, it starts off, remember, Revelation chapter 1, it tells us, John tells us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, concerning the Revelation, he says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John. Uh, that word signified is simeo, uh, means to show by signs. And so when we approach the book and say, perhaps these things are symbolic, these, you know, the thing we're seeing here, this isn't really a temple, it's a symbol for the church. And some say, oh, well, we take the Bible literally. It's like, mm, it, okay, it says it's a symbolic book. It says that, chapter 1, verse 1. So if you're taking it literally, you need to take it according to the letter. That's what literal means. According to the letter, it's a symbolic book. So the literal interpretation of Revelation does mean that you approach these things as signs. Now, a sign is a picture. We use the Lord's Supper as an example. You have the sign, and then you have, as we say, the thing signified. All right? The Lord's Supper, we have bread and wine. There's the sign. What does it signify? The body of Christ that was broken at the cross, the blood of Christ that was shed at Calvary. So you have the picture, and then you have the reality, you might say, or the thing symbolized. In baptism, uh, that points to the uh, application of the blood of Jesus Christ, identification with him in his sufferings and in his death. And yet we wouldn't say that the water itself is the blood of Jesus. I'm surprised the sacramentalists didn't go that far because they try to do that with the wine in the uh, sacrament of the Lord's table. But we recognize that baptism is a picture, although there are some that say, oh, water baptism causes you to be born again. It's like, no, it doesn't. Okay, The Spirit of God is what causes or who causes you to be born again. 
So in a sacrament, it's important you don't confound the symbol with the thing being represented by the symbol. Same thing here. These are some symbolic representations of greater realities, you might say, or at least of other realities. And so when he says, uh, he's told here, rise and measure the temple of God, it's neos to theu. And elsewhere in scripture, we know what that means. He's being told, measure the church. Now, the question is, some have said, well, is he measuring the uh, true church or is he measuring, we might say, the external body of Christ? Remember when Paul said that not all Israel is Israel? And Jesus said, many are called, few are chosen. The Bible talks about those who will uh, profess to be godly but deny the power thereof. So we have the visible church, and then we have the invisible church. Uh, the Church of Rome denies that distinction because, well, because they deny a lot of biblical truths. But they say that, well, the visible church, in their mind, the Church of Rome, that's the only true church. So if you're in that by participation in the sacraments and submission to the Pope, then and the traditions of the church, well, then you're in, you know, like you're in the boat, so you're okay. It doesn't matter what's going on with you. If you're a member of the church, you know, you're good. You're going to heaven because everybody in the church goes, as long as they get the sacraments and, you know, get last rites before they die. <clears throat> Otherwise, they don't. But because it's all based on the priestcraft, as the reformers often called it that you have to have the priest. He's the one that saves you. And the Bible doesn't teach those foolish doctrines. Uh, but the reformers, Luther in particular, knew from Scripture there's the, the visible church and the invisible church. If we go back and read the opening chapters of Revelation, you see that Christ is addressing visible churches. And some of them had some pretty serious problems. Okay, Some of them, he threatened to remove their candlestick. Some of them, he... Uh, basically pointed out that there were people there like Jezebel and others and the, those who had the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, though they were within those visible local congregations, they weren't really part of his people. Jesus warned at the end of the Lord's uh, Sermon on the Mount, his Sermon on the Mount, uh, in Matthew chapter 7, that there'll be many that will come to him and say, Lord, Lord, um, and he'll profess to, and they'll claim we did many wonders in your name. We prophesied in your name. Uh, and he will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who work iniquity. He said, I never knew you. That doesn't mean he didn't know about them. It means he didn't know them covenantally. They were never his people. But they thought they were all the time they were running around earth. Um, they, as uh, R.C. Sproul points out, that when names are used twice, it often connotes familiarity. And they don't just say, Lord. They say, Lord, Lord. Have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and in your name done many wonderful works? Uh, they claimed perhaps an intimacy with Jesus and a familiarity that they had no warrant for. But they thought all was well they were, because they were part of the visible church. So it seems here that John is perhaps measuring or being told to measure the visible church, even though God does dwell in the visible church, it's within those that are true believers. The reason why I say this, we'll see that... <clears throat> Um, there's some things that happen that kind of point to if this is a symbol for the church, then uh, there's part of it that is thrown out and left to the Gentiles. So the angel says, rise, measure the temple of God, the altar. Now the altar, if you remember, that's the place where the blood is sprinkled. Remember in Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, the souls that were under the altar, and they cried out for justice. Later we see the men of the world crying out for the mountains and the rocks to fall on them and to hide them from the lamb and from 
he who sits on the throne. The worldlings had no cover. They were exposed to God's wrath. There was no atonement for them, no propitiation. The blood of Christ had not been sprinkled upon them, you might say. They were considered unclean and fit for hell, and that's where they were heading. Those who were under the altar who had been martyred, they asked for justice, but they're safe. And the picture of them, souls under the altar, I mentioned this when we went through it in Revelation 6. When I first read it, I thought, what is that showing? Souls under the altar? Are they crammed under the altar or something? It didn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> then it dawned on me. It's a picture. They're under the blood because that's where the blood is applied is on the altar. And their souls were under the altar. It means they were safe. That's where the lamb was offered was under the on the altar. They're under it. So they're covered. Same way you're under the blood of Jesus Christ if you're a believer. You're not exposed to the wrath of God. So the altar was to be measured. That has I do, I think, with the preaching of the gospel, you know, and how is, is Christ being set forth. John went so far as to warn in his first epistle that anyone that comes to you and doesn't bring the doctrine of Christ come in the flesh is not of God, but is of the spirit of Antichrist. And that every spirit that's of God, that is the spirits that men claim to be empowered by, uh, that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that has to do with his person, incarnation, his work, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to heaven, uh, his session at the Father's right hand, and his coming again. All the things we talk about in the creed, actually. All right, Every spirit that confesses that, it means freely confesses, because it's in their heart. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. John says, that is, that's the spirit from God. That's the spirit of God speaking in those situations. The church preaches the gospel. That's our duty. That's our job. We preach it indiscriminately because we don't know who the elect, the elect are. They don't have a little E on their head or something about them. You know, God knows who his people are. Paul said, nevertheless, the foundation of God stands sure. Having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone that names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. That first part's good. The Lord knows those who are his. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes in the visible church, we think hypocrites, some people that have nothing really to do with Christ, as the Puritans would say, they've never really closed with Christ. Those of you who work in business or real estate, you understand what it means to close a deal, okay? Um, when you close a covenant, that means there's an agreement been reached, etc. Well, it's not a negotiation with God. To close with Christ means the Holy Spirit has caused you to be born again because you heard the gospel, you're saved, you're believing in Jesus, you trust, you're trusting in him, you've called upon the name of the Lord, <clears throat> all the benefits of salvation have been given to you, and you believe and you've given yourself to Jesus willingly because God made you willing to do that once he caused you to be born again from hearing the gospel. You closed with Christ. There are those in the visible church who have never closed with Christ. They thought, well, I'm a pretty good person. God must love me because I'm really good. And that's not how it works, if you want to put it that way. Uh, they've never closed with Christ. They've never come out of themselves as far as their faith and their trust. They're looking at themselves saying, I am a righteous man or I'm a righteous woman. Therefore, God must accept me because I'm good. Um, Sometimes believers can fall into that trap for a little while, and then God just shows you your heart, and you get over it real quick, and you go, oh, well, I need a Savior, don't I? Yes, you do, okay? When God wants to do something with you, he's going to humble you before Christ, before the cross, and you're going to realize what a need you have for a Savior. And so the gospel is preached. The saints 
recognize salvation comes through the blood of Jesus Christ and it's given freely to unworthy sinners. But again, there are hypocrites in the church who never have closed with Christ. Now, the reason I'm saying this, you want to make sure you're not in that latter category. All right. And many a hypocrite has gotten saved. All right. It came out. So if you're thinking like, ooh, I'm kind of self-righteous a lot and I kind of think highly of myself. But we're not saying you have to have you know bad self-esteem. I'm saying you need to recognize you're a sinner and you need to come to Jesus. And so if you're not sure where you stand, call on him. Recognize what the gospel is. You know, the altar is being measured. That's what John was told. And then measure those who worship at it, who worship there. Those who come to that altar, measure them. That's kind of what we're talking about, transitioning into that. The altar, again, remember, that's the place where the blood is sprinkled. And those who worship there, God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. They're not depending on the sacraments to get them into heaven. They're not thinking, well, if I, let's see, I was water baptized. If I go to the priest and tell him I did a bunch of bad stuff, you know, and I can do that, truly, not necessarily recommending that. I'm just saying, if you want to talk about bad stuff you've done, you've got a priest that'll listen to you, you better hope he's sitting in a comfortable seat, okay, because he's going to have a long list of things. But people think that, and then if I participate in the other sacraments, there's actually, Rome says there's seven of them, um, and then before I die, if the priest is able to get to me and uh, anoint me with oil right before I die, then I have the forgiveness of my sins. I get to go to heaven. But if the priest doesn't get there, you're in a heap of trouble. All right. Uh, it used to be that a person who, a, a Roman Catholic, no matter how faithful they'd been, um, how many times they went to mass, how many times they'd prayed to the saints and Mary, this is according to their system, if they died without what they call extreme unction, unction has to do with the anointing, uh, they could not be buried in a Catholic cemetery. I know that because that happened to my uncle who was a Roman Catholic. He was a truck driver and he died on the road and he'd been a faithful Roman Catholic. And uh, my aunt was really brokenhearted and upset. I wasn't a Christian at the time, so I didn't understand what was going on. I just know the family was really upset about it, um, that he, he was not allowed to be buried in a Roman Catholic cemetery because he had not received last rites because he died while he was trying to get his uh, vehicle off out of traffic on the road while he was having a heart attack. You know? And uh, if you didn't have that magic right done, you didn't get it, according to them. It's still the truth. They haven't changed on that. They, there's some more gracious people. They might allow that now simply because just about everything's allowed in the Roman Catholic Church, at least in the United States. But the point is, God is a spirit. We worship him according to his word. We trust in Jesus. That we have sacraments. There's two of them in the Bible, water baptism and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Christ appointed those himself, and they've been continued on. You can go to the Bible and find that those are there. They're appointed. And so the altar and those who worship there were to be measured in the temple, the naos of God. And then, but then he's told, but leave out the, the, the court which is outside the temple. And some believe that's the reference to the visible church. Uh, and it says, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. That's an interesting number. Uh, later we see it, it's expressed as 1,260 days. That would be 42 months reckoned, uh, lunar months reckoned at 30 days each. 
And some believe that that has to do with years. In the book of um, Ezekiel, in chapter 4, at verse 5, there it says, God speaks to Ezekiel, and he told him, um, I have laid upon thee the years of their iniquity. So I told Ezekiel, lay on one side uh, for a period of time, 390 days. He said that had to do with the time that Israel had been in the land before they were uh, brought into captivity. And he says, I have laid upon thee the years of their iniquity, according to the number of the days, 390 days, so shalt thou bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. And so each day was to represent a year. Many believe that's a real key to understanding references when you find numbers. 1,290 days, well, three and a half years, 42 months, um, could be a period of 1,260, rather, um, 60 years. That would go if you measure from the time of Christ's death, generally estimated to be around 30 or, or uh, 33 AD. That takes it up to right about the beginning of the Renaissance period, around the uh, around. 1290 or so, or 1294, and soon after the Renaissance, as you know, that's when people began to read Greek again, and then time went on, things began to change a little bit. Uh, that was the reign of Pope Boniface. Many believe he was a pretty good picture of an Antichrist Pope. Uh, but whether, you know, some like say the, the fulfillment of these prophecies is difficult. Anybody that says they're not, I don't think really understands the nature of what's going on here. So, for 1,260 days or years, 42 months, three and a half years, the outer temple is to be trodden down of the Gentiles. And you think about the Middle Ages and all the foolishness that came up. And I'm talking about this whole strange, weird system of sacramental salvation. Where did that come from? That's where the Reformation happened. When you read the Bible, you're not going to come away with a sacramental system. You're not going to come away and say, well, you have to be in submission to the church and have the priest do the, all the, you know, the baptism, the Lord's Supper, which they call the mass because they believe that that's the, really the body and blood of Jesus. Once the priest, you know, they say in the Middle Ages, hocus corpus meum, which is Latin for this is my body, which, by the way, is where the phrase that magicians use, hocus pocus, comes from. Okay, because supposedly when he says hocus corpus meum, by the power of his priesthood, he's able to transubstantiate the bread into the actual physical body of Jesus. He's able to somehow bring the physical body of Jesus from heaven and put it in a cookie for you. All right. And if I sound like I'm mocking, you figured me out. Okay, because it's a really foolish, pernicious, damnable system because it keeps people from trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It was accomplished once and for all on the cross. He said, everybody knows this. What did he say right before he died? We said several things, but the one most important is, or one very important is, it is finished. He didn't die and say, oh, I'm going to have to have priests for the next 2,000 years repeat what I'm doing. Oh, I hope they remember to do it. He didn't say that. He said, it is finished. It's done. It's completed. Everything that is necessary has happened. And now we have the application of it. Someone says, well, could you say that the benefits of Christ's death are applied to believers when they participate in the Lord's Supper? Yeah, I have no problem saying that because they were received by faith, not by bread and wine. Okay? You want to eat the bread and you want to drink the wine if you're a confirmed Christian? 
Do it by faith. Look to Jesus. And don't, it's not faith that the bread is really Jesus and the wine is really his blood. It's faith in what Jesus accomplished at the cross. Is that, wow, I get to eat this bread, which in a very real way, through the continuity of its uh, being administered throughout history, I'm eating the bread in a certain way that Christ himself broke that first day. I realize these loaves are not that old, okay? But the idea is that this is the sacrament that he appointed. It's continued on, and it goes right back to that night. That's why we do that. But I receive it by faith. I eat by faith in that his body was broken for me. I drink the wine in faith, knowing his precious holy blood was offered in my stead for me so that I don't have to die in hell or go to hell for eternity. The eternal son of God died in time for me. That's how you receive it by faith. And so uh, when we're looking at the, the sign and the symbols and the benefits of all this, we have the temple now being trampled outside the system. I think this is a reference to the middle ages myself that the, you're free to disagree though. Okay. Because this is a symbolic book. And it's difficult to say what's the actual fulfillment. It has an application definitely toward the Middle Ages. The time it seems like the Gentiles brought a lot of their paganism in the Roman emperors when Theodosius made the or Theodosian made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. Now Constantine said, No more persecution, I'm a Christian, and Christians were given favored positions. Uh Theodosian couple of emperors after him said it's the Christianity is the religion of the Roman Empire. So they're like, wow, that's great, isn't it? No, that meant that if you weren't, quote, a baptized Christian, you couldn't work for the government. Could you imagine the United States if we if I had a president and a Congress and a Supreme Court that all said, unless you're a baptized Christian, you cannot have a government job. You think we'd have people applying to us to get baptized? You bet we would. That's exactly what happened in the Roman Empire. Would they be saved people that are trusting in Jesus? No, they'd be people who want to keep their job. That's what happened in the Roman Empire. And so, what you know? What, what do we do? I've got a statue of Zeus here, and I've got one of Athena. And oh, no, 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 you have a statue of Moses. And oh, that's Mary now. Okay, uh, Athena was considered to be a perpetual virgin. So this idea of the perpetual virginity of Mary comes from, it's not in the Bible. Mary and Joseph had children after Jesus was born. So that's taught very plainly. The Lord's brothers are mentioned as not being believers. You know, so you try to say, well, that's just referring to they were so close as believe. No, it's that his brethren didn't believe until after his resurrection. My point is, all these pagans came into the church and they brought with them their little idols and images. And pretty soon you start seeing this garbage come up in the churches. Because they love their idols. They didn't remember the last thing we saw in um, uh, chapter nine after the, you know, all the judgments fell. It says, but the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, and stone, and, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. The Bible so clearly condemns image worship idolatry. Now, the Eastern Church, they say, well, we don't have idols, we have icons. And I always remember what Archbishop Cramner wrote. He was a solid Protestant, died for his faith under Bloody Mary in the 1500s. He wrote a book against idols, or a sermon, and he pointed out, and I think I've mentioned this before, idol and icon 
are two words for the same thing. Idol is a Latin word. Icon is a Greek word. You're taking two different languages. So when they say, well, we have icons, we don't have, oh, excuse me, images, imagio, okay? Uh, we have imagio, not icon. And he says, it's the same thing. It's two different languages. You're not supposed to make rep visible representations of God or Christ. And you're not supposed to bow down to them. That's what the second commandment is all about. So what Rome does, by the way, just so you know, how do they read the Bible and get away with this stuff? Roman Catholics, contrary to the Hebrew text of the Bible and even the Latin Vulgate text, they take the first two commandments. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make, then the second one is you shall not make any graven image of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or on the waters under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. Uh, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity upon the fathers and the sons to the third and the fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy to thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Pretty clear. You're not supposed to make images. And if you do, you're going to have some problems. They take the first two commandments and put them together and say, well, you're, to, you're not to worship other gods and you're not supposed to make images of other gods. But it's okay to make pictures of Jesus and statues, et cetera, et cetera. And so what? So they combine the first two commandments to destroy the second commandment so they don't have to obey it. It's like, okay, so they have nine commandments? No, they take the tenth commandment and they break it apart. They said that the ninth commandment is you're not supposed to covet uh, your neighbor's wife. Uh, and then the tenth commandment is you're not supposed to covet your neighbor's house. Well, that's in Exodus chapter 20. But if you go to Deuteronomy 10, the reference to the wives and house flipped and starts house and wife. Clearly, the 10th commandment, is, it's one. It's not nine and 10, the way they try to force it. The Lutherans have done the same thing. And um, that's why they allow images often in their, their worship that they shouldn't. It's contrary to God's word. And it's a twisting of scripture. The point is, the temple was outside the Gentiles. What are they going to do? They will tread the holy city, which in Revelation very clearly is the new Jerusalem, the church, at least on earth at this point. Um, they will tread the holy city underfoot 42 months. But in the midst of this time, verse 3, God says, I will give power to my two witnesses. And there's a really important question that comes up. Who are these? Uh, I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So God says, during this time that the Gentiles are trampling the temple, the outer court, the visible church, I believe, which I believe references the Middle Ages, there's going to be two witnesses raised up who are going to speak out against it. They will prophesy, we're told, during that time, 1,260 days. Now, 42 months and, uh, and uh, uh, 1,260 days, it's the same period of time. Why does the Holy Spirit use two different references? It means the same thing. Well, 42 months is a long time, but they're months. They go by. These witnesses are going to prophesy every day. That's why I think it lists the 1,260 days. So we ask, who are these two witnesses? Well, in Deuteronomy 19.15, the first thing we need to know, and in several places in the law, it says that the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word will be established. No one under the Mosaic law was to be put to death. 
except by the uh, mouth of two or three witnesses or not. You know, they had to be people that would testify they'd seen it. That's an established principle of law. In Second Corinthians chapter, Second Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, Paul makes reference to it because he was coming to them. And he said, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word will be established. That's what the law says. Paul says that clearly has application in the church also. So this principle that these two witnesses are there, first of all, it means that their witness is true. So what are the two witnesses? Well, there's a lot, as some have said, could be Moses and Elijah, because if you read the description of them, it says, um, he says, I will give uh, power to my two witnesses. They will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth, that is, they're not going to be rich and wealthy and opulent. They're going to be uh, opulent, rather. Uh, they're going to be living in repentance. You know, sackcloth in the scripture is associated with repentance. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Well, Elijah spoke of himself as he, the one who stood before the Lord. Uh, the, the olive trees, that's where oil comes from. Two lampstands. Now, Zechariah 4, chapter 4 talks about uh, the, the two olive trees that supplied the, the oil. So it's kind of, how do we understand? These are, this is an anointed witness, you might say, okay? They're empowered by the Holy Spirit, and they stand before the God of the earth. This is talking about the true church within the visible church during that period, I believe. So we'll say, yeah, but there's two of them. Well, if you turn to Ephesians chapter 2, when Paul is talking about the wonderful mystery of salvation... In the book of Ephesians, I'll get there in a moment. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, I think we all know the passage. Uh, he says that uh, right before is in, in verse uh, 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, that is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, that is God's one working in you, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So your good works in your life are already prepared. So when you have opportunity to do good, do it, as long as it's according to Scripture. But then Paul goes on in uh, chapter 2, and he says, Therefore remember, he's writing to the Ephesians, that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, so he says there's the circumcised and the uncircumcised. You Gentiles are the former, or the, you know, the uncircumcised. That at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You were just Gentiles, dead in trespasses and sins. Your culture was corrupted. You were idolaters. You were immoral, you were vicious and, and dangerous, okay? There were some philosophers, and there were some restrained by uh, cultural restraints, but all in all, at least spiritually, you were dead. That's what he just said earlier in chapter 2 at verses uh, 1 and 2. He said, and you, he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. But then he tells them in verse 13, but now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, so you're no longer, by the way, that tells us in uh, Acts when he said to them that are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. Paul's saying, you Gentiles were far away from God's covenants. You weren't part of his people. 
You weren't part of the true spiritual Israel. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who has made both one. Both what? Well, the circumcised and uncircumcised, the Jews and the Gentiles. He's taken those two groups of people that were at enmity with each other. They didn't like each other. The Jews were persecuted long before the Nazis ever showed up. They've been persecuted throughout history. Gentiles didn't like their fact that they worshipped one God. They didn't like the fact that they laughed at their images and idols and wouldn't bow down to them, etc. But then Christ came and saved his people out of, really out of both, because the Jews, by the time of Christ's coming, were given over to formalism and a type of sacramentalism. They believed they'd be saved by their works. But Paul here writes to the Ephesians and says, He, that is Jesus Christ himself, is our peace, who has made both Jews and Gentiles one, that is, in him, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that is, those ceremonial laws. Uh, Christ did away with all that. He fulfilled all righteousness. He took away the thing that was because the you know the Hebrews or the Jews they they wouldn't eat pork. They couldn't go under the roof of a Gentile. There was they couldn't have fellowship with them, etc. Christ did away with all that. So now, if you're of Jewish background or Hebrew background, you can have a ham sandwich. It's not a sin. Give God thanks. It's sanctified by the Word of God in prayer. But that's not what this is. This is not about eating ham sandwiches, by the way. It's about loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. He broke down the middle wall of separation. What was that wall? Those commandments contained in ordinances. So as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. That's another way of saying it. Who were the two witnesses? I believe those who were far off and those who were near who have been called. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Right, and then it goes on and uh, talks about in verse 22, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. That's that idea of the church being the temple. So of those two, he made one. So personally, I'm persuaded that the symbolism here, it's not Moses and Elijah. It's not Elijah and Enoch. Some say it could be them because they never physically died. Uh, some have said, well, the two witnesses could be the Old Testament and the New Testament taken together, possibly. Uh, I'm inclined because of what I read in Ephesians that the two witnesses are the the church of the Lord Jesus Christ made up of saved Jews and saved Gentiles in one body. In Isaiah 43, God told Israel, you are my witnesses. In Luke 24, 48, Jesus Christ told the apostles, you are my witnesses. Uh, And so we find that all through Acts that the apostles and that apostolic ministry of proclaiming the gospel. I believe that's what we're referencing here. So, you know, some say, well, does all of this fit? Uh, you know, I can't say, well, I could just absolutely prove everything, you know, without a shadow of doubt. If this is not the fulfillment, it's the, definitely an application of it. All right. 
So we're told here that they stand before God. <clears throat> if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth. It's like, well, that's not really happening. Well, if it's a symbol, when Jesus said, whatever you bind on earth has already been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth or free on earth has already been freed in heaven, the church has the power of the keys. When the church pronounces to someone that unless you repent, you're going to go to hell, in a very real sense, there's fire coming out of the mouth of those who proclaim the gospel, and those who spurn that warning perish. Those who continue to try to harm the church will be destroyed. Every person on earth that is an enemy to the church of Jesus Christ and does not repent will burn in hell for eternity because God protects and loves his bride, the church. We're told these have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. By the way, before he talks about them, anybody wants to kill them, that's how they're going to die. Uh, they're not going to die as saved people if they try to harm the church, I believe. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. So, you know, the saints rule the earth by their prayers. And so as they these men prophesy, they can dry out the earth under God's judgments. Uh, we've seen that recently. I remember we prayed last fall and God heard our prayers and brought an end to the drought thus far. My, I think it's difficult for some of the folks down south, uh, I think they're having trouble dumping as much water as they can into the Pacific Ocean. They're still trying, but the Lord sits in heaven and he laughs and he just sends rain periodically so we don't get completely flooded. It's pleasant. The animals in the forest are watered. Things are growing. God's merciful. And it's all of grace because we know we don't deserve it. Um, so these have power to shut the heavens. That is, God hears their prayer and their prophecies. They have power over waters to turn them to blood. Remember in Egypt, when Egypt rebelled? So it's a major uh, problem there for those. You look at all the water pollution that people are worried about. Uh, could that be it? Well, it's a judgment from God. It makes, they're not, water sustains life. And so things happen, judgments fall. And to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. So we're not saying that the church goes and does all of these things all the time, but God hears our prayers. That's the point. Now, we're told that during this period when the saints were, uh, the outer court was being trampled and the prophets were prophesying in opposition to that, when they finished their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. The, we've had a beast, we've had the an angel come down, the angel of the bottomless pit, Apollyon, remember? Uh, this, this strange character shows up. Well, he's going to make war against them and overcome them and kill them. There's going to be great persecution take place. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Now, some have said, well, clearly that's got to be Jerusalem. That's where Jesus was crucified. Well, as some of the reformers pointed out, Christ has been crucified in Rome way many more times than he has been or was in Jerusalem. Because if you remember, the writer of the Hebrews warns about those who crucify Christ again under themselves a second time. And so this could be, it could be a reference to Jerusalem, but it also could be a reference to something else. And I think I, I, I'm pretty sure it's a reference to Rome, okay? Because uh, our Lord has been crucified there often by the gospel being denied and people, they have turned their backs on his, his offering, then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations, uh, you know, it's universal. 
We have a word that we say in the creed that I've talked about. It's a good word. You say, well, who were these people? How would you, is there, is there just one word to describe peoples of every tribe, tongue, nation, um, and kindred? Yeah, it's called Catholic. Okay. So here we see this, this vast multitude. We'll see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. So it'll do them no honor if they die uh, unworthy deaths, you might say, ignoble deaths. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry and send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. So they're going to just be beside themselves with joy because it looks to them like these two prophets have been silenced. Now, it's an interesting historical fact that when St. Bartholomew's Day's massacre took place in the 1600s in France, when the Protestant Huguenots were wiped out by royal decree, people were given permission to go out and kill every Protestant they could find. They slaughtered them, men, women, and children. If you ever want to read about the St. Bar Bartholomew's Day, Day's massacre happened on the Saint Day of St. Bartholomew, or the, the feast day of St. Bartholomew. When the Bishop of Rome heard about it, the Pope, he went in and offered a celebratory mass and gave thanks to God. And they, I've actually seen the pictures of the coin. They had a coin struck, praising God that all the heretics had been slaughtered. That's what the reformers were having to deal with. Today we look at the Church of Rome as quasi-benevolent institution. We don't talk bad about Roman Catholics. And we're not at war with Roman Catholics. We're, I'm talking about the system that they're involved in. They're victims of it. Same way, you know, if you look at the Reformation, the people that came out of Rome, they had been practicing what we would call Roman Catholics. God opened their eyes. There's a day coming when we're going to see massive revivals, and I think we'll see the, the uh, kingdom of Antichrist implode on itself by people getting saved out of it. Through the gospel, many a priest at the Reformation became a pastor because they read the Bible and they followed Christ. And we'll see more of that, I think, in the future. So they celebrate this. It's, that's happened. That actually has happened, okay, historically. When godly people have died, the wicked have celebrated. But they celebrated a little too soon because um, we're told that in verse 11, Oh, by the way, verse 10 lets us know they're merry because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. They didn't want to hear about the need for repentance. They love their sin. And these guys were running around telling people, if you don't repent of your sins, you're going to go to hell. Ooh, who wants to hear that? It affected their conscience. Next time they were doing something horrendous, it bothered them. It tormented them. They're coming. We read about the locusts that tormented men. Okay, those are the locusts from hell. That was a a proclamation of, of judgment and damnation with no hope of salvation. These guys go and preach repentance. They don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear, they want to hear about Jesus. Go to the public forum right now and start talking about Jesus. Get on a soapbox and start preaching. Watch what happens. You think people are going to say, oh, we're, there might be one or two Christians. Go, hey, thank you. You should expect you're going to probably have stuff thrown at you. I've been there. I've had that happen. We've done open air preaching. I've had rocks thrown at me. It's not a pleasant experience. Okay. But you just, okay, this is where out here we know that's going to happen. The world doesn't want to hear it. So they, they send gifts to one another and they celebrate because these guys are dead. Because they tormented those who dwell on the earth. That is those who are earthlings, worldlings. Verse 11, though, now after the three and a half days, that is, they seemed like the wicked had won. They were silenced, but it was only for three and a half days. 
The breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet. There was a revival literally here in this the picture. Uh, symbolically, it seems like this is a reference to the church being raised up again. That is the true church. So this witness that the wicked thought they had silenced, it didn't work. They Well, we got rid of them. Yeah. How'd you get rid of them? Well, we killed them. You do know you killed people that belong to the one who raises the dead, don't you? So I think it's funny, you know, in the Gospel of John, after Jesus raised Lazarus, people were coming to Bethany, the town, to see Jesus, but also said to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. And so the Pharisees, when they heard about this, they, they said, well, we're not only going to kill Jesus, we need to kill this Lazarus guy also. It's like, you guys really that, that stupid? Okay, Jesus raised him from the dead, so your plan is to kill him again. You don't get it, do you? Okay, by the way, they didn't kill Lazarus as far as we know. Um, they killed Jesus, but that didn't work out either. Because again, after three three days, what happened? Our Lord came back alive. Here we see these folks are alive in Christ. God raises up his witnesses, his church, I believe. Um, and great fear fell on those who saw them. So when this happens, things it's take noted of. They, and they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. That is those who killed them, those who rejoiced over them. They saw it. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake, big shakeup. Okay, Hebrews talks about when God says, uh, I will shake heavens and earth, quoting from the prophets. Uh, and the idea is that the things that are shaken can be removed. The things that are not able to be shook remain. So there's a big earthquake. Things get shook up and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed. And the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. So many died in the earthquake, that is in the shakeup, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to God. So there was the beginning of at least some form of repentance starting to happen. And that's what began to happen at the during the Renaissance and at the Reformation as the word of God began again to go forth. And then John just says, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. So there's more judgments to come. But the purpose of the judgments is to let us know that God's in control of history. And if you keep reading, we see all these dark things going on and all these judgments. When you get to the end of this book, you find that Christ has been victorious. His people are raised incorruptible. The wicked are cast into hell. There is no more earth in the, in the sense that we know it. There's a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so there's good things happening. The book of Revelation is describing that battle in a lot of symbolic language. And you keep in mind, in the first century, if John would have written, or if Jesus would have said, here, write down, I'm going to destroy the Roman Empire, etc. Every Christian the Romans could find, they could say, ah, see, they're traitors. They're, going to, they're against the Roman Empire. So this book was given symbolically. There's symbolic language being used that kept the saints safe from that form of persecution. And those then would study God's word and know what he says elsewhere, using scripture to interpret scripture, would get a pretty clear idea that, you know what, Jesus is going to be victorious. And they cannot silence the church. They cannot silence God's prophets, his witness, because the Lord is in control of history. And that's the lesson we take from this today. So um, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that your word is true, that you have given us a clear testimony, even though there are some parts in it that are hard to understand, Lord. But we thank you for your word. 
Help us to be faithful, Lord. If those two witnesses do refer to your church, then that's us. So help us to speak up in the midst of this world and not just to be silent in the face of evil and murder and lies and all the wickedness that's going on, but help us, we pray, to preach the gospel, Lord. We who live under that altar, Lord, here on earth, that is under the blood of Jesus Christ, help us, Lord, to get your word out. We know you have a people in this world, and we know some of them have not yet been saved. And so guide us and direct us. Help us to be faithful to your word and to share the gospel, the good news, as we have opportunity. And we do pray you'd equip us and help us, for we ask all this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.